0: but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. And uh, kids, we have some children's Bibles back there now um, on those shelves, as well as um, there's some blue large print Bibles. There are also some Bibles in the uh, seat in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to take that Bible home with you. That's a gift to you from Jacobswell Church. We're going to be in John 13 this morning and in God's providence. We're going to be in a passage that um, in some ways encompasses some of what we've we've been a part of with baptism this morning. Uh, We're going to be in John 13. There's some page numbers for you red nine hundred blue ten sixty nine children 's eleven sixty three and and if you didn 't hear me we do have some children 's Bibles back on the uh, on the little offering table back there if you 'd like to um, grab one of those well we uh, we turn a corner in in john 's gospel uh, today in in that Jesus public ministry is officially over and uh, and we now see this this look this almost um in, if you think of a magnifying glass, just on Jesus and his disciples. And we, we, we witness this conversation and some discourses that he has with his disciples in the hours leading up to his betrayal uh, at the cross. And so we're going to begin in John 13 and, and read verses 1 through 11 uh, this morning. There's the page numbers. I encourage you to follow along. This is God's word. John 13, verse 1. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the words that you have given us in this gospel. Given so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing we could have life in Jesus' name. And so we pray this morning, Lord, help us to believe, help our unbelief, and grant us the grace to receive what you have for us in these words. We pray. In Jesus' name and by the power of the Spirit, Amen. The other day I was uh, working on something which is typical at at home. I'm working on things right now. So we're remodeling, and I heard from the other room my one year old daughter start screaming and crying and and going on, and it was one of those hurt cries, not not like I'm just being fussy, like she was hurt. So I immediately turn and I ask, what happened? And began walking toward that room down the hall, and out runs my four-year-old with a smirk on his face, and he just takes off running in the opposite direction. And I said, hey, what happened, Graham? And he just kept on running. And running and running. Why? Why did he run away? (laughs) Yeah, he did it. (laughs) He did it. Here's what I want to get to. Fundamentally, he believed the oldest lie in the book. Fundamentally, he believed the lie that asked, will my dad still love me even though I dropped through a tractor, a metal tractor, red Farmall metal antique tractor on my sister's head? Will my dad still love me even though I did this? That's, he believed that lie. He, he, he believed that question. He thought, I don't think my dad's going to love me. I'm going to run away. This morning, I want to ask you, have you ever heard this lie? You ever thought it? We even heard testimony this morning of, of someone who heard this. I have a friend even who once made some poor choices and is having to deal with the consequences of those choices. And, and this friend was in a rough spot. And instead of turning to his family and turning to his friends for help, he isolated himself. He pulled back, which led in turn to him making some more poor choices that eventually led to jail time. When I asked him about his decision to isolate himself, he told me that he was ashamed. He thought he would be judged if he went to his family and friends. In short, he was afraid to draw near to the very ones that loved him most and find help. Why? Because he believed the lie that says, when you mess up, you are unlovable. Do you feel unlovable today? Are you struggling to believe that God still loves you? Even though you did this or that, or thought this or that? Maybe you know in your head the old song, yes, Jesus loves me. But you're not sure if the song applies to you. You're not sure in your heart you believe that. Maybe you're not sure if God loves people who keep sinning the same sin over and over. Maybe you feel messy, you feel unworthy, and you don't know how anyone could ever love you. Maybe something really terrible and hard has happened in your life, and you're questioning how could a God who is love let something like this happen? Or maybe you're here today and you know God loves you, but you need to be reminded that God's love is higher and wider and deeper than anything else. Friends, if if this is you, and I imagine it is, then this passage is for you. The Apostle John tells us in verse one, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he he loved them to the end, completely, entirely, without fail. In what has been called a dramatic illustration of Jesus' entire ministry, we have this passage here before us, and it answers this question, does God still love me? We're going to see this love displayed, a love that surpasses knowledge in, in three ways, and you can follow along in your bulletin if you want. It's what did Jesus know, what did Jesus do, and what does Jesus offer Let's start with what Jesus knew. We see at least five things as we walk through these verses here that Jesus knew. And it's interesting, this language that that John keeps using. Jesus knew this, knowing that. Let's notice some things that he knew. Verse 1, now before the feast of Passover, so this is sometime just leading up into that last supper, not quite there, but sometime before that, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So the first thing he knows is that it's time to go to the cross. Every time in the Gospel of John we see this phrase, hour, up until just in chapter 12, he'd been saying, it's not yet my hour. My hour has not yet come. And now he starts saying, it is my hour, meaning it's time for me to go to the cross. It's time for me to go to that part of suffering. So first he knew It was time to go to the cross. Secondly, verse 2, during supper when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. If you go down to verse 11, for he knew, Jesus knew who was to betray him. Not only did Jesus know it was time to go to the cross, Jesus knew that the devil was at work in one of his disciples in Judas to betray him. Something to keep in mind as we progress through the story here. So Jesus knew it was time to go to the cross. Jesus knew that the devil was at work. Jesus knew his betrayer. Third, verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Jesus has all things in his hands. Just try to think about that. Everything is in his hands. The entire universe is in his hands. Here's some verses that describe all things in Jesus' hands. Psalm 8, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Colossians 1, for by him, that is Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. Hebrews 1, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 2, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You getting the idea? All things in his hands. This guy's powerful. He has might and strength, and he knows that he's powerful. He knows that everything holds together because he says, hold together everything. Jesus knew it was time to go to the cross. He knew who was going to betray him, that the devil was at work. He knew of his power, all-powerful, omnipotent. Fourth, verse 3, Jesus knew that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus knew where he was going ultimately. He knew where he came from. He knew he was God, divine, supernatural, above all, overall, which is what makes him all powerful. So he knew it was time to go to the cross. He knew that his betrayer was at work because the devil was at work in him. He knew of his power. He knew he was God. Fifthly, I'm sure there's more things we could find out that he knows, but I'm only going to point out five. Fifthly, if you look in verse 7, when Jesus answers Peter, it's interesting. He says, what I'm doing right now, you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. And There's multiple levels of meaning with this afterward, like when is afterward. One of the afterward you will understand pieces of this meaning is the fact that Peter, in just a few hours, is going to betray and deny Jesus. He's going to abandon him. Do you, do you know this guy? Are you with Jesus? No, no, not me. Three times he does this. And Jesus looks at him, you remember, and then Peter runs out crying and weeping. Jesus knew that Peter, among some of the other disciples, would abandon Jesus, would deny him. You see, what we're seeing here in short is this. You can get out your pencils, fill in the blank if you're ready. Jesus knew perfectly, because he was God, when and how he would suffer. He knew perfectly when and how he would suffer. Jesus knew how he would die, when he would die, who would kill him, who would leave him, and that he had the power to stop it all from happening or to make it happen. And what did Jesus do with this knowledge? So here's my son, Graham, running off, right? Right? He's taken off, and my wife finally corrals him and says, uh, when we find out what happened, okay, Graham, you you hurt your sister, so we're going to get out the wooden spoon, and you're getting a spanking. As soon as he heard wooden spoon, he just starts going hysterical. No, no, no. I mean, he's like, no, 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 no. He's crying. He's screaming. He's saying, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. So if I get him and, and I'm holding him. I, I always hold my kids before I give him a little wooden spoon action. And I say, you know, I, why do this? Because I love you. God disciplines me. And God tells me I've got to discipline you because, because I love you. So I, I, I get this. And he's just crying. And I'm trying to keep his hands from behind so he doesn't get his hand, you know, whacked too. And finally, I give him the, the whack. And I only gave him one whack. He's four. Just so you know, Ross, his older brother, had just gotten three whacks with the spoon. It was a tough day right before that. And as I whack him, instantly, it's like something switched. He just immediately looked at me and said, that didn't hurt at all. <laughs> and Ross is still crying. He's going, oh man. Here's the, here's the point. My son knew he was about to suffer. He knew he was about to be in pain. Even though I think the anticipation was probably worse than the spanking. But he knew it was coming. And what did he do? He ran away. He went kicking and screaming, no way, I'm out of here. What does Jesus do? He knew perfectly when and how he would suffer. And we're not talking about a wooden spoon on the rear end here, folks. He knew he had the power and authority to stop it. And what does he do? Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't instantly defeat Satan, which he could have done. He doesn't rebuke Judas and say, I know what you're up to, buddy, and foil his plans. It would be tempting with that kind of power, wouldn't it? To use it in that way for his own personal gain. No, he he doesn't use his power like this. Instead, what does he do? Verse 3, we find this. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. In verse 4, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. It's kind of like a like a cloak, tunic. And he took a towel, tied it around his waist. So he's uh, assuming a position of servanthood. He pours water into a basin. And on his hands and knees, he begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, you've probably heard this story a hundred times. You've maybe seen it in children's books. And you've probably seen how they highlight that the feet are stinky. They are stinky. They wore sandals. Some people didn't wear shoes. They're walking in all kinds of stuff. Jesus gets down and puts his nose right in it. He shocks the disciples by washing their their stinky feet, including the feet of his betrayer, Judas, and the feet of his deserter, Peter. Now, I love in the Gospel of John how, how John likes to draw out that there's multiple meanings in things. Like, like, and I don't mean like, like there's multiple absolute truths. I just mean he's, he's, there's these layers. And he shows a literal layer here and also a symbolic layer of meaning in, in what's happening here. Why Jesus does this. The first thing is this literal. This really happened. This event really happened. You notice the detail he uses. He, he, he mentions seven specific actions. You know, he rose. Uh, let me find my spot here. He rose. He laid aside. He took a towel, tied it. I mean, this is very specific. Why so specific? Because John is trying to say, I really saw this happen. Jesus really washed dirty, stinky, poopy feet because they needed to be washed and no one else was doing it. Jesus really loved his disciples and wanted them to know that they were loved. So he got down and he washed their feet. But you'll also notice something else here if you know the end of the the story, that this is a parable. This is an illustration of a love far greater than washing feet. An illustration of a need that we have that's far greater than stinky feet. We know this because Jesus says so in verse 7. What I'm doing now, you don't understand, but you're going to. Now this is interesting, this parallel that we find in this passage, in these verses with Philippians 2, and I'm thankful to James Montgomery Boyce who helped me see this. the name that is above every name. You'll notice here. I, I tried to make a chart. Let's see if it worked. Yeah, it kind of worked. There's a chart. Here, laser pointer time. Here we go. We're getting exciting. Notice that how the foot washing. Oh, is that right? There we go. Mike, you don't have one, right? Good. Okay. Right here, Jesus rose from supper. Though he was in the form of God, though he was on the throne of glory, he rose from that to come down to earth. He laid aside his outer garments. He did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He laid aside the glory of being with God in heaven. He took a towel and tied it to his waist. He took the form of a servant. He poured water and began to wash. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we even see later in Philippians uh, referring to him being poured out. And then in verse 12, which which is the next verse uh, beyond our passage today, it says this, that when he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garment and resumed his place. Verse 12, and what do we see in verse 9? God has highly exalted him, referring to his resurrection and ascension. Pretty interesting, isn't it? You could almost think that John heard or read Paul's letter as he was writing this and was thinking about everything Jesus did and wanted to put it in language that would recall to mind. Could be. John wrote his gospel after Paul. Paul wrote his letter. What's the point of all this? What what did the all-powerful, all-knowing Jesus do? He took the form of a humble servant. That's what he did. He took the form of a humble servant. In an extravagant display of his unending love, Jesus did one one of the most menial tasks of their day, uh, uh, and he washed their feet. But he also wanted to give the disciples a picture of what he was about to do. Namely, go to the cross to pay the penalty for their sins. Knowing perfectly how and when he would suffer, knowing that he had the power and authority to stop it or make it happen, Jesus took the form of a humble, lowly servant for the sake of his disciples. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, Jesus saw the cross clearly before him and walked straight up to it. Walked straight up. He didn't run kicking and screaming like my my four-year-old, or like we do. We would do that. No, Jesus walked straight up to the cross. Why? Why did he do this? Why did he exercise his power in this way? Why not defeat the devil in a different way other than death on a cross? Uh, Every time my, my wife has a baby, it's happened four times, We might be done. She's not here. We're done. But every God only knows, every time my wife has a baby, I pride myself in in changing all the diapers for like the first few days. It's like this thing. I've wear this badge like I'm the diaper changer for the first few days. With hope, she was our fourth. I did it for two weeks. I think I got almost every diaper. Now, the day after our first, Ross, was born, I remember laying him down on the changing table and seeing something very strange in his diaper, some sort of blackish, greenish, sticky, tar-like substance, I later learned, called meconium, and little did I know that our regular wipes weren't going to do the trick. So here I am, this new father, I, I knew I knew, like, okay, I gotta take the diaper off, put a new one on. And I started trying to clean him, and, and I got it all over every me, hands. I don't, somehow got on my hair. It was on his feet, it was in, on his clothes, my clothes, the changing to, it was everywhere. Sticky, tar like, meconium everywhere. And I remember thinking, will I ever be clean again? <laughs> Can anything get this off? Any, any, anybody you experienced? Yeah, so we've got some new parents in here. Get, if you're pregnant with your first, get ready. It's exciting. Stay at the hospital a little longer until that happens. Anyway, we were at home. Peter, here, here's what I want to say. Unlike meconium, which although a nuisance, and it, it does come off after a little bit of effort in olive oil. That's the trick, olive oil. Unlike this, though, there is a filth that stains our lives that we can't remove by our own efforts. We can't. And Peter and the rest of the disciples didn't quite get this yet, and Jesus wants to make sure they did. So washing their feet, Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said, you're going to wash my feet, Lord? And notice Peter didn't say, let me wash your feet. He just said, no, you can't wash my feet, Jesus says, you don't understand, but afterward you will. Peter says, well, never. You're never going to wash my feet, ever, ever. In fact, in the the literal, the the word in Greek ends with eternity. Like, you're never going to wash my feet ever, ever, forever. Get away, forever, not doing it. Don't you love Peter? He's so extreme, right? Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you don't have no share with me. Well, then wash all of me, (laughs) right? Make me clean, make it all over me, right? I mean, this guy, he's, he's, he's like this. I love Peter. Not only my feet, but also my hands, my head. Verse 10, Jesus said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, Peter, but not every one of you. Speaking of Judas. See, here's the problem presented to us. Unless washed by Jesus, you don't share, you have no share, you have no part with Jesus. Now, do, maybe you're saying, well, do I need to be washed? I mean, I'm pretty good. Here's a few verses maybe that can help you think about this. Isaiah 64, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts All the good things we even do on our own are like filthy rags. 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? In fact, says Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. You see, friends, we all like sheep have gone astray. And unless you are washed from the penalty and guilt of your sin, you have no share with Jesus. You have no share in fullness of joy, in eternal life, in lasting satisfaction. You have no fellowship with God. Something that is within all of us, this restlessness that can only be fulfilled in Christ. Unless you are washed by Jesus, you have no part of that. Here's the good news, friends. It's the great good news of the gospel. Jesus offers to make you clean. Jesus offers to make you clean. You notice that he mentions really two kinds of washings. They're related to each other, but they're a little different. Verse 10, he says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. So there's this, this first washing is this bath. Like all of you, the implication is this complete you know, washing where you've been entirely washed. And then the second is a, a foot washing, except for your feet. If you've bathed, you only need to have your feet clean now. Sort of like to wash away the dirt from your, your, your travels, which make your feet dirty. What's he talking about? Well, first, he's talking about this, this bath, meaning that you need a once-for-all cleansing from your sin that separates you from God. You're, you, you are rejecting God in and of yourself and you need to be cleansed. You need to be pure. You need to be clean now and eternally. So he's talking about whether the, 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 the churchy word is justification. He's talking about how you are made right before God. 1 Corinthians 6, we read it earlier this morning, says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, that is set apart, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were made right before God, through him. Titus 3 mentions it like this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We need to be washed by Jesus once and for all. We need to be washed. To those who trust Jesus' death on the cross offers to cleanse you once for all from the stain of sin that separates you from God and from eternal life. But notice what else Jesus offers. He offers you this once for all cleansing that in, when you are washed in that sense, you are cleansed forever. In the sight of God, you are holy and pure. But he also offers something else. He says the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. He offers to us this daily cleansing from sin because you and I both know on this side of eternity, we still struggle with sin. And if we thought, well, I'm bathed, I'm clean, but wait a minute, I'm a little unclean because I did sin. I do need to be washed. Jesus says, I offer even a cleansing for your daily troubles. JC Ryle says, This is the daily forgiveness that we need from the daily defilement we contract because we travel through a sinful world. You get a little dirty on the way, don't we? we, we we're a little messy on the way. And Jesus says, Yes, I'm going to cleanse you every day. I offer this to you daily forgiveness. This is especially important to consider when you think about what Peter was about to do. In just a little while, he was about to deny ever even knowing Jesus. Out of fear for his own life, Peter would abandon Jesus. What does Peter find out about Jesus in his denial? He actually finds out just how much Jesus loves him. It's the same thing King David found out after he committed adultery and murder. It's why he was able to humbly and confidently cry out in Psalm 51 Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7 Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It's, it's with this same humble confidence that we can go to the cross knowing, as it says in 1 John, 4, uh, 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You See, Jesus offers to make you clean once for all and every day. Why does he do this? Romans 5.8 says it very well. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, our first parents, we'll go back to Adam and Eve for a second. They live in a perfect world. God walked among them. Everything was good. And yet they believed a lie. And in those moments, when, when the devil himself in the form of a certain serpent was whispering And tempting them, they began to question God's love for them. Does God really love me? Is God really good and good to me? And instead of remembering their loving creator, they believed a lie. And what did they find out? How did God treat them? Yes, they had to face the curse of death. Yes, they had to face these these curses. The ground's going to be hard. There's going to be a lot more pain in childbearing. And you're kicked out of the garden separation. But what else did they find out? They found out of a promise, of a promise of one who would come, of an offspring who would defeat forever, the devil. And they found out that God in his grace, he sacrifices some animal and clothes them and he actually kicks them out of the garden so that they don't eat of the tree of life and remain in their sin forever. See, what they find out is that God loves them in their sin. There's a pastor who used to tell his kids this. He said, kids, when you mess up, when you make a mistake, come to me first, because then you'll really know how much I love you. Parents, side note, that's good advice to tell our kids that. See, Adam and Eve discovered something. In their sin and their rejection of truth about God, they discovered just how much God loved them. Jesus said, greater love has no end than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Friends, when you trust in Jesus, when you receive him, rest upon him, in his mercy and grace, he calls you his friend. and He laid down his life for his friends. In your sin and your messiness, in your daily struggles. Don't run away from God. Run to him. And find that you are more loved than you could ever imagine. Let's pray together. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Lord Jesus, thank you Thank you, thank you. We praise you for what you offer us. Lord, help us to live to live in the reality of this truth with humble confidence that in you we are clean. Even in the midst of our messiness, you still draw us closer. We praise you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.